My name is Daryl Modine. I'm joined here by the lovely and talented and boy so socially committed Alana Khan uh, today and we wanted to welcome all of you to Milwaukee Gathers in Unity for Human Dignity. It's so exciting to be um, standing before so many people of different faiths, of different heritages or cultural uh, heritage from all around the world. It really is an honor, especially given the division that we see so often today in particular. You know, when we first started planning this event, us and all of the, what, 15, 16, 17 co-sponsors we have, one thing we really articulated from the very beginning was that this had to be a nonpartisan effort. But I guess one thing I want to mention right now is in organizing this event and even just looking out in the crowd, somebody could say this is a bipartisan effort yeah. or a tripartisan or quadpartisan effort. Because what we found is it doesn't matter what political party you're in, when you see something is wrong, you say it's wrong and you come together and you do something about it. So thank all of you for coming out tonight. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the lovely and talented Ms. Alana Khan of the JCRC of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. There's been so much energy around people coming together um, since this executive action. And we stand together, or we sit together, we come together. Those people who were born on this land, those whose ancestors were brought here on slave ships, immigrants and refugees to oppose this executive action, banning refugees from predominantly Muslim countries, halting funding for sanctuary cities, and expanding detention for immigrants and asylum seekers. Because these actions betray the values that are etched into our country's foundation, to welcome the stranger, to provide refuge for the persecuted, to gather, in, in Emma Lazarus's famous words, the tired, poor, huddled masses yearning to breathe free, and to be a beacon of hope, which is that our country has laws that we count on to protect the vulnerable and ensure equal rights without regard to race, religion, national origin, gender, sexual identity, sexual orientation, disability, or sexual identity. We try, we try to meet our aspirations. We fail sometimes, and we try again. We're imperfect, to be sure but this action is beneath us. There's no need for us to resort to actions that marginalize, that exclude, that discriminate against people. We have to say that there is a better way. So we stand together, we come together on this Tuesday evening from groups throughout our city, as Daryl said, for human dignity, in defense of our Constitution, in defense of our country's core values and our core purpose to provide a home for immigrants and to aspire to better. So thank you everybody for being here. And we want to also thank, you know, there's the sense that if we had continued organizing, we would have had many, many more organizations who wanted to be part of this. And I think it's a real testament to the interest in standing together and in, in, in meeting our highest values. We are, you know, we're people committed to, to bigger ideas, not just getting by. So the sponsors, and I think it's on the PowerPoint, um, ACLU of Wisconsin, Centro Hispano, I'm sorry for my Spanish accent, it's going to be terrible and I'm just going to warn you in advance. Um, Centro Hispano of Milwaukee, Felmers Cheney Advocacy Board, Hillel Milwaukee, Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee, the Jewish Community Relations Council of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation, LULAC, League of United Latin American Citizens of Wisconsin, Maruf of Milwaukee, 
MICA, Milwaukee Inner City Congregations Allied for Hope, the NAACP, Milwaukee Branch, Refugee Congress, Roberto Hernandez Center at UW-Milwaukee, the Sam and Helen Stahl Center for Jewish Studies at UW-Milwaukee, Serve to Unite, the United Community Center, Voces de la Frontera, Wisconsin Anti-Violence Effort, and others who don't want their name mentioned because they're afraid, which I think is something that we should note. We also want to acknowledge those um, community leaders who could join us today. And forgive me, if we miss you, please tap on one of our volunteers' shoulders, and we want to make sure we give you recognition for being here. And I'm going to ask everyone to hold your applause till the very end. We have uh, Judge Valerie Hill. We have Ricardo Diaz, uh, President and CEO of the United Community Center. We have Vanessa Yanas, representing Senator Tammy Baldwin. Uh, we have Dr. Patricia Holman uh, here, who's in charge and the founder of all the Carmen's campuses. Patricia, where are you? I'm going to make an exception here. There you are. Can you stand up, please? Thank you for letting us use the facilities, and thank you for everything you do to help educate our young folks. Okay. So let me get back to this. We have Tammy Rivetta, Executive Director for the Southside Organizing Committee, or SOC. We have Chris Herzong, um, the founder of the Hmong American Peace Academy. And uh, we also have, well, there's a few other people. I'll get to them. In, oh, and we have Hannah Rosenthal, CEO of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. And we have Mickey Pollack, too, who's the chairman of the JCRC. And we have Maria Matahano. I know she got married, though. So, um, it, representing Gwen Moore's office. So, um, oh, and Alderman Chevy Johnson, too. So, big round of applause for all these folks coming out here to support this effort, right? It takes a community and it includes everyone in that community. So, now I think without any further ado, we want to invite some very distinguished gentlemen to join, up here, uh, join us up here and line up across the stage. And I just want to take a moment. So, um, we're, we have a very proud history of when our country calls our young people put themselves at risk, the mothers, the wives, etc. Accept the challenges that come along with that. And let's be honest, there are challenges that impact the whole family. But there is also a little story that isn't known. And it's about um, battalions of Hmong soldiers from Laos and Thailand who, when we were having very difficult times in Vietnam, they volunteered to help our country. They volunteered and died and perished, and their families suffered horrible atrocities for helping us. And one of those things we did was say, you are welcome to our country. And that's a theme that I think we're going to continue to be echoed here tonight, because there are so much talent, so many people who have things to contribute, who have fallen victim to wars, to persecution for their beliefs or their religion or whatever that may be, and tragically, the dramatic rise in violence that's happening around the world. There are over 60 million refugees today, more than in any time in the world's history since we've been counting. That should tell us something. For all of our sophistication, for all of the so-called advances we think we've been making, it really does tell us we need to refocus our efforts and learn how to come together and stop being as divisive as we are. 
So anyways, we wanted to, all of our, us and the co-sponsors, wanted to invite all these brave gentlemen and our veterans as well, native-born and foreign-born, to join us up here for the Pledge of Allegiance. So I'd ask all of you to please stand. And I know we have multiple flags, so we'll be using this one right over here, oh, stage right, as they say. Okay, care to lead us? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And gentlemen, thank you all, and God bless. You don't need to be born in America to be an American hero. So the purpose of tonight is for us to hear the stories of those who have found refuge here. And to begin, we're going to ask Reverend Andy Oren from the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee to lead with some comments and the statement that the Interfaith Conference released. Good evening. As Ilana said, my name is uh, Andy Orr, and I'm one of the pastors at Bayview United Methodist Church on Milwaukee's South Side. I was actually on my way here when Ilana called and asked, could you open with prayer tonight? So armed with uh, a little bit of time to reflect on the day, I was thinking about what kind of day we had today. If you were out and about this morning and into this afternoon, you know it was downright nasty out there. It was cold and wet and rainy. It was miserable. Not unlike some of us have been feeling for the last couple weeks. But did you notice about two o'clock, the sun, or not the sun, but the rain stopped. And the sun didn't come out. But we know it is up there. And we know that that sun is gonna burst forth with warmth and light enough to have everyone bask in the glow. Just as I know, as you do, that there is one sun above us, I believe there is one God above us. And I invite you now to join me as we take a moment to ask God's blessing on this gathering tonight. Creator God, we are your people gathered here together. You have made us so different from one another and yet we are all the same no matter how we understand you no matter how we name you no matter how we see you you see us all the same your love comes out for each and every one of us and your message is the same for all of us that we are to love one another we are to welcome the stranger we are to extend hospitality. We are to live in peace. This nation is a place where we have long welcomed everyone, and we want to continue that. So God, we ask you to bless us in our efforts. Bless this land, bless this nation. Bless every one of us in this place and every person who is striving to come to this country. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I am also the chair of the cabinet of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee. We are an organization that represents 17 different faith traditions in the Metro Milwaukee area. 
last week reissued a two-paragraph statement I'd like to share with you at this time. For almost 50 years, the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee has stood together, committed to upholding the dignity of every person and the solidarity of the human community. We believe the recent executive order that would stop the entry of refugees from predominantly Muslim countries is not only detrimental to national security, but also contrary to our collective commitment to unity, as well as to our individual faith understandings of what it means to offer hospitality and to welcome the stranger. For over 200 years, our nation has stood as a beacon of hope for the oppressed of the world. It has been the place that countless generations have looked upon as a land of real opportunity, a place where they can live free and provide for their families without hindrance. Certainly, there have been times in our history when we have not afforded these opportunities to everyone. This should not be one of those times. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Good evening. Buenas noches. Mi nombre es Eileen Figueroa. Soy la directora estatal de LULAC, Wisconsin. My name is Eileen Figueroa, the state director for LULAC, Wisconsin. Thank you, everybody, for taking some time and joining us this evening. In addition to this evening's event, I want to share some very good news. Earlier today, a resolution authored by Alderman Jose Perez was passed by the Common Council by a count of 13 to 2 with only Alderman Donovan and Burkowski voting against it. So in addition tonight, we are honored that our next speaker, who I will announce shortly, will actually sign this historic resolution. That being said, our first speaker this evening was elected as Milwaukee's 40th mayor, April 6, 2004, and has been reelected with over 70% of the vote in 2008, 12, and 16. He continues to work to strengthen the city's economy by creating family-supporting jobs and providing assistance to Milwaukee entrepreneurs. Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, please put your hands together for the mayor of Milwaukee, the Honorable Tom Barrett. Well, good evening. I am honored to be here tonight, and I want to thank all of you for joining us uh, for a very special evening. I want to, uh, in particular, acknowledge Alderman Chevy Johnson, who's here in the front row, and Judge Valerie Hill, who's also here, um, and thank them from, for being here also. I've been involved in public life for several decades now, and I have to tell you that this time is different from any time I've ever served before. And one of the main reasons it is so different is I'm seeing something that I had never seen before. I'm seeing visible fear from people who live in our community. And I want to take a minute, because I think this is such a serious issue, to talk about it. And it has two aspects. One is the aspect that deals with the proclamation that I'm going to sign or the resolution I'm going to sign in a few minutes. But I want to talk about the fear that I see, particularly in our Hispanic community right now. 
because it's real. And our city government is here to let you know that we understand your fears and we don't want you to be fearful. So how can that happen? Let me tell you from my perspective what has happened here. And some may disagree with it, but it's important to understand this. For years now, we've had a debate at the national level over immigration policy. And we could have a very hot debate here over what that immigration policy should be. That's in the province of the federal government. And the federal government has failed. It has failed to pass meaningful immigration reform in this nation. That failure lies at the federal level. And again, we could have a debate for hours as to what the cause is for that failure. So what happens? So you get a new president who wants to instill even more fear in people who live in our communities. And so he issues this declaration having to do with sanctuary cities. Now, sanctuary cities have different definitions, and there's a definition that frankly does not include the city of Milwaukee, and some of you might want it to, but I want to explain to you what our policy is here. And I want to explain it as it pertains to the police department, particularly for people from Hispanic descent. And I want to start by talking about an eight-year-old boy, an eight-year-old boy that came to Milwaukee from Mexico. He didn't come recently. He came 25 years ago. And he came 25 years ago because his mother and dad wanted him to have a better life. That's why he came to this community. And he played by the rules. And he went to the Milwaukee Public Schools. He went to college. He got a degree. And he wanted to teach. But he couldn't teach because he, did not, he was not here with documents. So he got a different job, and now that young boy is 33 years old. And he's driving home, and he's got his own family, and he's got a headlight that's out. And he's stopped by the Milwaukee police. My question for you is, do we want our Milwaukee police to use their time and resources to sit with him in a detention center to send him back to Mexico for having a burnt out headlight. No. I agree with you. And this is not theory, this is real stuff. Because what the president is saying is he wants our police officers to in essence be federal agents, to do the job that the federal government has failed to do. Now I would also argue that that policy is weak on crime. Because if I were to ask you, would you rather have the resources going to sit in a detention facility for three or four hours with someone with a burned out headlight, or do you want our police officers out there trying to end homicides, drug dealing, and violent crimes, I think the vast majority of this community would say, I want our police officers to make this a safer city. And I want our police officers to make this a safer city. So we are going to continue the policy that we have had. And we want, I want everybody to know that. Our policy is when our police stop someone and they're wanted for a violent crime or a serious crime, you bet we're going to take them to the federal authorities. Again, I think, I don't care where you're from, if you're wanted for a, a serious crime, we're going to make sure that you're dealt with. But if you've got a burned out stoplight, a headlight, or you've done something else that's minor, 
I don't want us to use our resources to do that. It's wrong, it discourages and hurts police community relations, and it, it really, I think, is an excuse for the federal government not to fulfill its responsibilities. So again, for anybody who is here, anybody who has family members, I want you to know that we are not taking up what the president wants us to do, which is to have all of our police officers become federal agents. We are not going to do that. So that's the first issue. The second issue, of course, is, is the, the ban, and I will use the word ban, um, even though that's been debated whether we're allowed to use it. I might get locked up for using that word, I don't know. Um, but let's call it what it is, it's a ban. It's a ban on individuals from seven different countries. And what has gone through my mind from the second I saw that he signed that was a picture. And some of you will know what picture I'm talking about. It's a picture of that little boy on the beach. The little boy from Syria on the beach who died. And I couldn't help, when I saw that he had signed that order, I couldn't help but think of that little boy and thought, so is this what we've come to? Is this who we are as a people? That we're going to turn away someone who is yearning for freedom? Someone who is trying to have a better life for their children? Is that who we are as a people? I think we're better than that. I know we're better than that. But it's gonna take our collective voices to be heard. And I was just over the weekend, I was with a friend of mine who was very conservative um, and asked me what I thought and I told him pretty much what I told you. And I was very surprised because he said that his mother had come to this country undocumented from Austria. Um, and it was a different time, but all of a sudden he had an understanding of what was happening. That, that people who are trying to do what's right for their families are being treated in a way that we don't want to be treated. Now that's not to say we shouldn't have immigration laws. Um, but we also have to deal with the reality. And the reality, again, as it pertains to the, the Hispanic population, is that there are millions and millions of people here and we are not going to deport 14 million people. It's just not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. So earlier today, um, Alderman Johnson and his colleagues passed this resolution um, dealing with the city of Milwaukee's opposition to Presidential Executive Order 13769. That's the resolution that deals with the ban. Um, when I saw that that was being signed this morning, I thought, what better place for me to sign that resolution into law than right here? Um, And I want, I want to do that with you because I want people to understand that this is the voice of the people of this city who is speaking. The people who live here do not want to see the actions that are being taken by the federal government right now. I am proud that we have a judiciary that understands this, at least at this stage of the game. I'm glad that, that the powers of the president are not unchecked and that we still have an independent judiciary that insists that we look at due process and equal protection under the law. Um, and we'll have to deal with those issues. But on behalf of the residents of this city, uh, I'm going to go over here and I'm gonna sign this resolution into law um, so that, and it will go to the President of the United States 
stating the opposition of the city of Milwaukee to the orders that he has now executed um, that I think are going to hurt people who are here for the right reasons. So I'm going to step over here and thank you all for being here tonight. Good evening, I'm Angelica Soto and I'm a junior at Carmen High School. Chris Abley is getting things done in Milwaukee County. Five years ago, Milwaukee County faced a dire, a dire fiscal outlook and the public policy forum asked of county government, should it go or should it stay? Today, Milwaukee County, through the dedication of its employees, has held bus fares flat while adding nearly a million new route miles, paid down millions of dollars in debt and deferred maintenance, established a dedicated office of economic development that has helped to create thousands of families supporting jobs and leverage 500 million in new development just around downtown area and is ahead of schedule on our plan to end chronic homelessness, all without raising taxes. Please join me in welcome Milwaukee County Executive Chris Abley. Well, good evening, everybody. I was thinking, uh, as I was watching the mayor sign his bill, uh, the county uh, passed a similar bill, not surprisingly, last week. And if I knew that we were signing tonight, I would have brought mine. But I think you get the point. Needless to say, the bill says largely the same thing. Uh, I was looking. Thank you. I was looking at this wonderful image, and it's a wonderful image. Uh, the Statue of Liberty is something that there, no amount of times you see this is it any less inspiring. Uh, some of you may have seen recently uh, the cover of The New Yorker. Uh, was particularly inspired, I thought, most recently. The New Yorker cover in the latest epi uh, issue, episode, see as we're in a TV world, uh, the latest issue, the cover shows just the arm in a night sky of the Statue of Liberty holding the torch, and the torch is extinguished, and there's just smoke trailing up. No words. The words that are implicit are the words that uh, Alana mentioned on the very base of that statue. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. There is nothing on that plaque that says, except for the following seven countries, uh, or makes any comments about religious exemptions. Long before even the Constitution, a uh, hundred years before, uh, this country, the founding idea of this country, is freedom of religion. That's not something we compromise. Uh, every single day, that I wake up with the privilege of serving uh, in elected office in this country, uh, it never gets trivial. It's never an abstraction. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, what it is, what it is that uh, we say we're protecting. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me when things like this ban are suggested, and God knows this isn't the only time our country's made mistakes like this, uh, often the justification is about security. And let's just be really clear. There is nobody in this room, there is nobody who's concerned about the ban. There's nobody who doesn't care about protecting this country. There is nobody who is pro-terrorism, nobody. 
But let's get real serious about what it is we are protecting. What we're protecting is the only country in the world founded not on what country you came from, what religion you believe, what the color of your skin is. It's founded on the embrace of a common idea, and that's individual liberties and that all people are equal under the law. So, I want to tell you another story. For many years before I served in public office, I worked with human rights groups, and I happened to be uh, in uh, Sarajevo uh, a little less than two weeks after uh, September 11th. Uh, the trip had been scheduled prior to that, and uh, for those of you who may not remember, in the mid-90s uh, in the Balkans, uh, there was uh, a conflict Conflicts in the Balkans has happened quite a bit, but in this case, uh, the, Ser the folks living in Sarajevo had been attacked, the Bosnians, by the Serbs. Uh, the good guys, the pro-West, pro-education, we uh, like free trade, we like uh, women's rights, uh, were the Muslim Bosnians, and the people who were trying to exterminate them were the extremist Muslims. Point being, there is no religion that's ever been created that has a monopoly on good or bad behavior, but the broader point is when you start focusing on what divides us, you're missing the point of this country. When I arrived there with some friends, there were women who upon hearing that we were Americans and realizing that literally a week and a half ago, the worst terrorist attack we'd ever had uh, had happened in this country, they came running up to us with tears in their eyes and they said, we understand your country isn't perfect, but the ideals of your country are extraordinary and they're an inspiration to us and your country has to stand up. And I remember telling them, for all, for all, just the, the shock uh, we all felt at that tragedy, I knew then our country will bounce back. The difference here is this is self-inflicted. The President of the United States, within the first two weeks of being elected, making a declaration that at absolute most charitable best is reckless, on one of the most fundamental, profoundly important de definitional principles of this country is not just a bank failure to be outraged at. It's not just another crime uh, that we read about. It's not a car crash. It's not a plane going down. It's not somebody making rumbling on the other side of the world about what they might do with us. It is the President of the United States attacking a fundamental principle of the United States. Tom, myself, Chevy, every single elected official in the United States, whatever their party, has one thing in common. Every one of us holds up our hand. The first thing we do when we are elected and we swear an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States, that's before we even get to the state of Wisconsin and whatever our municipality is. Seems pretty basic and there's a reason. It's the first thing every elected official in the country does. That's how important it is. This matters. It's not just a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's an American issue. Let's not, thank you. So, so what can we do? Uh, first, uh, I looked at the list of sponsors uh, and thank you. Uh, thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Lilac. Thank you, Carmen, for hosting. Um, 
everybody in this room uh, probably has two or three other causes that uh, serve to do good in the world that they get are volunteering and this is kind of preaching the converted here so I don't think anybody's on the other side of the argument but we all know there's some people who are and we need to make sure with our voices with our pens with our votes that this isn't just a small issue and we're not going to let it go. No matter how many other things come every day across the page of Huffington Post or the news, you know, whatever seems outrageous, we can't let this go. We can't become numb to this. We need to speak up. So uh, every chance you get, take it. Uh, every person you talk to, uh, engage about this. Uh, and again, um, uh, Thank you for everybody who I know is going to continue doing this. Uh, and let's not let anybody put out our torch collectively and keep us from being the beacon on a hill that we are. Thank you. My name is Julie Contreras, and I thank my hermano en la lucha, Daryl Morin. I am with the League of United Latin American Citizens, as you all well know, an organization in existence since 1929, defending the civil rights, the human rights, the educational rights, immigrant rights today, and consumer rights across this nation. But it's not limited to. What Daryl talked about is that not only am I a member of LULAC, and all the work that we do is volunteer, I'm also before that a server of the truth and liberation of all God's people. Um, I invite Donald Trump to walk with me with my boots from Texas down in the Southern District in the desert or at the border at the bridge when we're rescuing families. We start from the moment of organicness when they come to the Southern District of the United States of America. But even prior to us touching their hands or holding them and feeding them and bringing them into security, they have already taken a journey with human traffickers who abuse them, human traffickers who steal from them, human traffickers that kidnap their children. And I bring a message to you today. Currently, in the Southern District of Texas, right outside of San Antonio, Texas, where my grandmother was born, are 2,000 Central American children as of today. They are at full capacity, women and children, women shackled and chained, children inside of bob-wired fences, right now in the United States of America. FYI, Donald Trump, there is only one race, the human race. And there is no way that any American who has so much pride in the liberty that our veterans have fought for would even dream of shackling and chaining a pregnant mother and holding her on a table while she gives birth. Yes, this is real, and I have witnessed it with my eyes. I walk in the mud and stick my hands in the mud with the partner that God has blessed me with, my husband. And I have so much honor today to bring you a child, a voice from the southern country of Central America to bring you a truth, a message, a child that is eight years old, who many American children right now are playing Xbox or PS2 or laughing and watching cartoons, but he came this evening to bring you a message because the only thing he thinks about 
is liberty and freedom. And I've met a lot of children in my life, but I'm very honored to know Raul Ortiz. So I ask you with great welcome hands to welcome Raul Ortiz to the stage. Por favor, escuchen este, esta voz. 
Gracias y Dios bendiga América. Our next speaker immigrated to the U.S. in 1981 as a refugee from Southeast Asia. Her family spent multiple years in Thailand refugee camps awaiting their immigration approval. Today, she is currently an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater in the College of Education and Professional Studies. She earned her PhD in 2012 from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in urban education. She worked as a classroom teacher in Milwaukee Public Schools for multiple years before completing her studies. Please help me welcome Dr. May Vang to the podium. Good evening. So I want to begin by thanking the organizers and the sponsors for this opportunity to just share a little bit about the Hmong refugee story. Um, my journey and my family's refugee journey uh, actually began multiple years before I was even born. Um, as you heard earlier, because of the direct results of the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia, uh, my family, as well as many other Hmong families, were faced with the choice to either move or um, stay living where they were and face death and trials and um, genocide, all of those different things. And so my parents made the difficult decision to uh, cross over from Laos into Thailand um, and to apply for refugee immigration status. Um, that journey was not easy. Um, they didn't have transportation. It wasn't like getting on the train and coming over or crossing to a different country. Um, and I've spent many years just hearing my parents recall their difficult journey. Uh, but once we arrived in America, the journey didn't end. It wasn't as if we arrived and everything was perfect. Um, I think a lot of people who don't go through this process don't realize that once you arrive in America, your journey continues. And so for my family, like many other Hmong families, they also had a difficult time adjusting to a completely foreign country, completely new language, new ways of doing things, new cultures, um, new ways of surviving. But uh, by the grace of God and um, because of the helpful hands of many people and organizations, they were able to kind of continue to plug through every day. Um, and I can attest to the fact that uh, America indeed is great. I stand before you today um, because America welcomed the Hmong refugee immigrants here and they allowed us to have the opportunity to truly pursue the foundational principles of America. So my success, um, if you would call it success, and my ability to work at UW-Whitewater is pre precisely because we upheld a lot of the principles that America indeed was founded upon. So I'm proud to call America my home. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, indeed, our family, as well as many of the Hmong, have um, set down some deep roots in America, and we don't look to going back. America is indeed our home. We wouldn't have it any other way. Um, now, my family's story and the story of the Hmong um, are just one of many other immigrant refugee stories. Uh, and I want us to realize that um, it is indeed difficult for someone to fully grasp and understand the challenges that refugees face unless they have walked through it. Right? And these are challenges that, as America, we need to be willing to, indeed, like some of the other speakers said, be the hope and the light and the beacon to allow families and um, groups of people who seek freedom and seek for their human rights to pursue here in America. So when we think about refugees, don't let our assumptions and our fears blind us to the opportunity to truly be that beacon of hope and that light. 
Let us open our arms and welcome other groups of refugee immigrants and immigrants in general to set down their deep roots in America, to indeed make America great, because it is. And America is great precisely because of the contributions of many immigrant and refugee groups. So let us not villainize others. Let us not demonize groups of people just because of our misunderstandings, misinformations, and assumptions. Um, but let us take this opportunity to make America even better by realigning ourselves to the foundational principles of this country. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Sister Joseph Marie Flynn, a school sister of Notre Dame. And in the year 2000, I was the adult and family minister at St. Mary's in Hales Corners when a black couple came into our very white parish and they wanted to have their baby baptized and the man in the, in the um, marriage wanted to become Catholic. Well, I was in charge of adult and family ministry, so it was my job and I sat down with them and I said, well, tell me a little of your story. Regina's husband could not speak English, so she spoke. And she said, Sister, we were both tortured in Africa. Well, it's not often that you sit across the table from somebody who's been tortured. And she said, we're from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And all I know about Africa is it's a whole bunch of countries. I don't know where the Democratic Republic of Congo is. I had to run to the library after this interview just to find out where she was from. But that started a journey because years later, she came to the United States on, for, um, as a refugee and came with a, a false passport, introduced herself, and was brought in to Amer America and had to go through the whole system of fighting for her life. And she was denied asylum. This is the struggle, okay? Some can go to, to a refugee camp and where they get the refugee status, they go through all kinds of stuff before they are, ever come into this country. Regina just came because she was so afraid. And years later, she was picked up by immigration and promised to be deported. And some of you remember that story because it was all over the news in Milwaukee. And I thank God for all the support she got at that time. I ended up writing her book, Rescuing Regina, which I brought along in case anybody wants to read it. It's a wonderful book. Now it's out in paperback. This story changed my life and I think you'll appreciate hearing from Regina herself. Regina Bacala. Good evening. Um, like Sister Joseph said, my name is Regina Bacala. I'm from Democratic Republic of the Congo. The Congo is the second largest country in Africa. I have a degree in history. I was a history teacher. I'm an orphan for dad and mom. My mom died, I was nine years and a half. And my dad died, I was 12, 12 years old. So I had a chance to be raised by my uncle. And then I finished my school and become um, 
history teacher. And then I made a decision to go back to my hometown, the city that I was born, to be high school history teacher. So that time, we had Mobutu, a dictator president. It was just one political party. So after that, they changed that there was, they wanted democracy in the Congo. So my city that I was born, people didn't know what democracy mean. So I made a decision to teach them what democracy mean, especially for women. So I was doing every Sunday, Saturday, on my time off, we were going to the soccer field and a bunch of women would come someday 10, someday 20, 50. So one day, I was talking with a bunch of 50 women. And then the Mobutu soldier came, they started to beat women, start to beat her, and then they came, they arrested me. And they put me in the back of the truck. And they raped me. And they put me in jail. And just, you know, in Africa, when they rape the women, so just know that you become nothing. Nobody gonna trust you. Because when they rape you, everybody gonna say, it was your fault. It was the woman's fault. And after three months, I got released because of the Amnesty International. And I got released in jail. But I didn't stop to help the women, to explain women what democracy means. One year after that, I had to go to the Kinshasa. Kinshasa is the capital of the Congo. On my way to go in Kinshasa, I got arrested again for the second time and raped again with three soldiers. At that time, my cousin decided, said, Regina, you have to leave this country. Your life is in danger. And I said, yes, it's time for me to leave the country. It's hard to leave your family and to go to the place you don't know anybody, you don't know where you go. And I start to pray and I say, I wanna go so far away that people cannot think about me anymore. Because I was raped. So for me, I have just to go. And I made that decision. And we pray and we said, I think I have to go to the United States of America. And one of the pastors was there said, Regina, that's the place God wants you to be. Go. And in Africa, I have two Congo. It's Democratic Republic of Congo and Republic of Congo. So it was not easy for me to go get the plan to my country, Democratic Republic of Congo. So I had to go to another Congo. We used the first passport and come in the United States. And at that time, too, I didn't know that United Nations have a camp. And even though I didn't have a time to go to the camp because I have to save my life. And I used the first passport to come in United States. I came by New York. Then New York, I came to North Carolina. And the first thing I did was to seek asylum. And it's not easy to 
received asylum here. It's not easy. I found a lawyer and they reject my asylum. The judge gave me just one month to appear. Then I had to find another lawyer and no money. I found another lawyer and she did appear for me. And then we move. When I have my first, my first child, we moved to North Carolina. We came here in Milwaukee. So the first thing I did immigration, I changed my address. I did everything legal. And we will live in Milwaukee. So my second lawyer, but she did appear, and then she changed the office. And she didn't mention the new address to the immigration. So my appeal got rejected, and I didn't know my appeal was rejected. And I was arrested, and they sent me to jail in Kenosha. They arrested me in front of my kids and with pajamas. And it was a winter time, and no coats, and with a flipper, and no underwear. They didn't let me to change the clothes. And I was in jail for 84 years. 84 months, I'm sorry, 84 months. And it was thank you for Sister Joseph and the role and all my St. Mary community and all a lot of people from Milwaukee. And I got released in jail. And in 2014, I made the decision to go back to school. I went back to school. In 2015, I became American citizen. And in 2016, I finished my school, and now I have my degree, associate degree, and a medical assistant. And if you just want to know about my life, Sister Joseph wrote a book, so everything is on the book. Again, thank you very much, and God bless the United States of America. My name is Shaheen Sayed. I am a co-lead for Project Heart under Maruf. Maruf is a social justice organization and we work with individuals, families, and the community in need. We have many projects. We have a community garden, we feed the homeless, we work with inner city kids to help them pave a pathway to college. One of uh, the projects that's the most dear to me is Project Heart, and that's the refugee resettlement project, where me and a team of wonderful women work together with over 100 volunteers to help resettle refugee families here in Milwaukee. Uh, so we help them find jobs, we help with supplies, we help with furniture. We had six families come uh, two weeks ago and we helped furnish their apartment. It's a very rewarding project. I love what I do. Uh, and I would like to introduce you to one of the refugees we have. I ask you when listening to his story, just ponder about him and his family and all the other refugees around the world who go through situations um, similar to his. Thank you. Yes. As Alana mentioned before, there's a number of people that wanted to be here, but couldn't because they were afraid of what could happen here by other private citizens, 
as well as our government, as well as in their native homeland. So I've already spoken to members of the media, and I'm gonna ask all of you if you could please put your cameras down, etc. Um, because the gentleman is talking here in a very courageous way, and he's asked us not to capture his image. We can use his voice, and we can use his testimony, but there's a real threat here. So once again, please refrain from taking any pictures. And as I mentioned to the media, feel free to use the audio. Please don't use any of his face, or if you do, blot it out, okay? Thank you, my apologies. بدأت الحرب وما هي الحرب كنا نظنها أنها قصة قصيرة يحكيها لنا أبوينا كقصص قبل النوم ولكن القصة كبيرة وتكبر كل يوم وعلى حساب من؟ على حساب الأطفال والنساء والرجال والشيوخ كانت بدايتها هتافات تطالب بإصلاحات في البلد وكان يقابلها جيش بشار بالاعتقالات العشوائية ومن ثم كبرت القصة فأصبحت الهتافات يقابلها الرصاص العنيف فأصبح كل يوم يوجد قتلة ومعتقلين عشوائيا من الرجال والنساء والأطفال وبعدها أصبحت الدبابات والطائرات تقصف عشوائيا والأهداف طبعا البيوت الآمنين والأطفال والنساء فكنت ذات مرة موجودة في قرية الصغيرة عندما عندما دخل عليها جيش بشار وكانت الطائرة تقصف كل ليل والنهار وفي الصباح الباكر دخل الجيش بشار وأصبح يعتقل عشوائيا ويقتل عشوائيا ويقتحم من البيوت دون استثناء ودون أي سبب دخلوا بيت خالتي ومن ثم أقسموا عليها اتهموها بمساعدة أنها تساعد المشقين من جيش بشار بالهروب لأن بيتها كان قريب من أحد المعسكرات الجيش فوضعوها في الغرفة وأطلقوا عليه النار حتى ماتت أمام أطفالها ومن ثم حرقوا البيت وهي موجودة هي وأطفالها إلا أن أحد الجيران استطاع أن يخرج الأطفال قبل أن تأكلهم النيران وأخرجهم أحياء الحمد لله عندما أردت أن ألجأ إلى بلد الجوار كانت هناك معاناة حيث أنه يتطلب علينا المسير على الأقدام حوالي يومان أو ربما أسبوع فكنا نحمل الأطفال ونمشي في الليل والنهار نختبئ لكي لا يرانا جيش بشار وبعد معاناة طالت يومان والحمد لله نجوت بأعجوبة لأنه لم يقصفوا علينا ولم يقتلوا مننا وربما القتل فيها مثل هذه المرحلة الشاقة وعندما وصلت إلى البلد الجوار الأردن استقبلنا الجيش الأردني بكل مودة ومحبة وقدم لنا كل المساعدة فجلست في الأردن فترة من الزمن ولكن بلد الجوار كانوا لا يسمحوا لنا في العمل والأجور كانت غالية ومتطلبة الحياة هناك صعبة كثيرة فقررت أن ألجأ إلى بلد آخر فبعد دراسة طويلة أقررت أنه البلد الأفضل هو أمريكا لأنها بلد المساواة بلد الأمان بلد العدل بلد العمل بلد المحبة فلجأت إلى أمريكا وعندما دخولي إلى مطار شيكاغو كان هناك أناس يساعدوني ولا يعرفوني ومن بينهم موظفو المطار فيساعدوني ويقدموني إلى المساعدة ويقولون لي أهلا بك في بلدك وعندما وصلت إلى ملواكي وجدت ناسا كثيرون جدا ولا أستطيع أن أعدهم فقدموا لي وكنت لا أعرفهم من قبل واستقبلوني وساعدوني وقدموا لي المعونات وجهزوا لي المنزل وكأني واحد منهم وأعرفهم منذ زمن طويل ولكن في الحقيقة كنت لا أعرفهم وقدموا لي مساعدات كثيرة وكأني واحد من أهلهم وأتمنى أن أكون عند حسن ظنهم وأتمنى من الحكومة الأمريكية أن تبقى كما عرفناها بلد الكرم والمساوى وبلد المضيف للبلدان المنكوبة أن توافق على طلبات اللجوء من البلدان الجوار لسوريا لأنهم بحاجة ماسة إلى الأمان والعطف والاستقرار والمساعدة وهذه الصفات موجودة عندكم
في بلدكم أمريكا وأتمنى من الله أن ألتقي بوالداي اللذان بقيا في الأردن لأنهم لن يستطيعوا المجيء إلى هنا وأود أن أشكر الشعب الأمريكي والحكومة الأمريكية على ما قدموه للاجئين السوريين وغير السوريين والمعاناة المادية والمعنوية Thank you America, thank you Mulukwai I'm going to do my best to capture this. It loses a lot in translation, but um, when he was in Syria and the war started, he didn't believe it was real. He thought it was a story that he'd hear at night from his dad. All too soon, that story became reality, and the and they entered his. Um, I'm sorry. When the when free speech suddenly progressed to a war, they entered the Bashar al-Assad regime, invaded their village, began rounding up people with no discrimination. If you spoke out or resisted, you were met with bullets. Didn't matter if you were a woman, man, or child. As days progressed, they would drop bombs all night. They would continue to attack and round up people. One night when he was staying at his aunt's house, who lived near a soldier's camp, they were sleeping when all of a sudden the soldiers entered his house, her house. They grabbed her aunt and put her in a room and accused her of supplying information to the rebel army. She pleaded with them with, for her life and told them that she was innocent. They tied her up and burnt her alive in the room. They attempted to burn the house down with the children in the house, and luckily the neighbors were able to sneak out the kids. Shortly after that, he decided to flee. They fled on foot to Jordan, where they were met with open arms and greeted by the Jordanian people at the border. They attempted to make a life in Jordan, but it was too expensive and they couldn't work. So he set his sights on America. America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. America, where they value freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and equality. With that being said, he did his due diligence and was able to make it to Chicago here with his, with his family. He was so happy to see someone greeting him at the airport. He was more happy he was more surprised to see when he got to Milwaukee that his house had already been furnished and set up. Um, he is so grateful for all the support that he has received in Milwaukee and all the support he received getting here. His message to the American government is there are still thousands of Palestinians upon thousands misplaced or trapped in Syria and abroad. He just hopes that they'll have the opportunity to come to America and be greeted with open arms as he was. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Mickey Pollack. I'm the chairman of the Jewish Community Relations Council of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. Our mission is to speak as the representative voice of the Jewish community here in Milwaukee on issues of public affairs and public policy. But rather than tell you what our policy and positions are on the issues before us tonight, we have with you a gentleman who can tell you his experience as a refugee and immigrant uh, after losing his parents in the Holocaust and aftermath of the Second World War and what it means to him to have been able to come here and be with us tonight. So thank you for having us to the organizers and sponsors tonight. 
And please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Lee Marnett. Hello, can you hear me? Okay, uh, as I said, my name is Lee Marnett. I'm a Holocaust survivor. What has happened to me shouldn't happen to anyone in this world. We were taken from, uh, from my home, given two hours to pack whatever we can and put it in a ghetto where they would put 30 people in a small room with a leg of rats, one on top of each other. Naturally, we never expected it, but I was very young. I didn't realize what was happening. That was the ghetto. In the ghetto, they would keep people, and every week they would take 100, 200, they would take them and shoot them outside of the ghetto in a place called Panar, which is a, um, um, like a park or something. Well, from the ghetto, was very fortunate, went to a camp in Estonia, which is a labor camp. From Estonia, I don't want to go into real deep stuff. From Estonia, we went to a concentration camp called uh, Stutthof. Stutthof was a place near Panamunde. Panamunde was the place where they were making the two V rockets. They were going to London, and we were part of it, helping out, naturally. As little as I was, I was there too. Actually, we had like we call a Sonder commando. A commando was like 21 people, and then they had a capo. A capo is a guy who's like a foreman. He had a brick in his hand, and the commando was like 21 people. He says, through the gate, we'll only go through 20. I don't know who's gonna be, but someone's not gonna make it. He had a brick in his hand, and every day, that had to go through your mind. How you're going to survive? Naturally, being young, I didn't quite understand that. Now, from there, I was very fortunate. We went to another camp called Dachau, which is seven kilometers from Munich in Germany. From there, we were in a bad camp called Allah, which is like a starvation camp. And from there on on, they figured, well, they're going to hold us until we die or what have you. Luckily for us, the American army was very close, and they were told that whenever they would shoot us or what have you, they're going to be the first ones to get shot. So the American army came in. Naturally, they liberated us. Naturally, after liberation, I was uh, come to New York in an orphanage, and there they wanted to ask me, where do I want to go? Well. Since I could speak some German, they said Milwaukee was a very nice town, and I should, I should be there. My second choice was San Diego. Well, how am I supposed to know that San Diego is a dynamite town? Actually, Milwaukee is great, I should say, because I live here, I love it here, the people are great, great families, great people to bring up children. Anyway, I was in the orphanage in Milwaukee. I came to Milwaukee in the orphanage that was on 21st in Belit. My highlight was when I used to get a dime and go down to Schuster's and get an ice cream cone. But I decided, well, there must be something better. Then they found a job for me at Kohl's for 60 cents an hour. And later on, I got a little better job, better job. I learned a little English went to North Division High School, and little by little, I decided this is the greatest place on earth. 
where a guy who can speak a lot of English can come in here, make a living, uh, doesn't have to be prosecuted anymore, doesn't have to get worried about getting hit, uh, hit every time he turns around. So all I say is, God bless America. So before I introduce our next speaker, I wanted to acknowledge folks who are working in the trenches doing this work. Um, one of them is the Refugee Congress. The Refugee Congress is an independent advocacy and adv advisory organization comprised of refugees, asylum seekers, and stateless persons from across the U.S and they seek to advocate on behalf of, refu of for refugee issues internationally and also domestically. You can look them up at www.refugeecongress.org. I wanna thank them for being here. I also wanna acknowledge that there are four uh, refugee resettlement agencies in this town that need our support. Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Charities, the Pan-African Community Association, and the International Institute of Wisconsin. So if you have extra time to volunteer, they need you more than ever now. Back in 2015, November of 2015, uh, my partner in crime, Libby Gutterman, and I were feverishly awaiting, preparing an, a, a, an apartment for three young men who we were anxiously waiting for who were to arrive from Eritrea. So we were you know, doing everything that we could, soliciting donations, and anxiously awaiting them. And I'll never forget picking them up from the airport. And today, these young men have made unbelievable strides. They're in college, they have jobs, they have a car, and they have stable housing. I just want to acknowledge them. They're here tonight. Tashame, Andam, and Kibram. And now, the American Civil Liberties Union is standing up for all of our civil, civil liberties, defending the Constitution, and protecting all of our basic rights through the courts. Just last week, I know we all remember, it was a busy week last week, the ACLU attorneys sprang into action and they filed a motion for a temporary emergency stay on the enforcement of President Trump's executive order. The ACLU attorneys turned outrage into action for a more just and a more equal society. Unfortunately, the legal battles continue, but we're, helping, we're very happy to welcome An Angela Lang from the ACLU. She's a member of the executive, she's a member of the executive committee of the ACLU. Thank you so much. First, I want to um, really say thank you to the organizers and to the speakers before me. There's been some powerful, moving, emotional speakers before me, and I'm deeply humbled to be in this space with you all, so thank you for allowing me. Um, so as she said, I am a member of the ACLU, and they were the first group I ever got involved with when I turned 18. Um, I knew then 
The world was different about 10 years ago, but I knew then it was really important to be a member of the ACLU, and I'm proud to be on the board of directors and to serve on the executive committee. And I just wanted to share a couple thoughts around where we stand currently in this legal battle. As I'm sure everyone knows by now, about 10 days ago, President Trump signed an executive order suspending all refugee resettlement for 120 days and indefinitely suspending the resettlement of refugees from Syria. In addition to banning Syrian refugees, the president ordered a ban on all entries of the nationals of seven majority Muslim countries, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen for 90 days and said this ban might be extended and that additional countries might be added to that list. There have been multiple lawsuits filed against the Muslim and refugee bans. And these lawsuits raise various different legal claims, due process, equal protection, First Amendment. But the bottom line is the biggest legal problem with the executive order is that the US Constitution prohibits religious discrimination. People feel so strongly that targeting people from one religion, Islam, for exclusion and mistreatment goes against our core Amer American values. Part of why they feel that way is because it very clearly violates our Constitution. This is why every time Trump gets interviewed about the growing controversy, he says it's not a Muslim ban. But we all know the intention behind this. Trump said it himself. In December of 2015, Trump called for a total and complete shutdown on Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. And beyond this clear intent, the executive order itself discriminates against Muslims in key respects. The executive order came with very little pre-planning or consultation with agencies charged with enforcing it. And soon thereafter, immigrants and refugees from the seven countries were being refused and the right to board planes abroad, and those that arrived in the US airports, including those who were in mid-travel when the executive order was announced, began being detained and threatened to be deported. People who were subjected to these screenings were even made to show their social media accounts, asked about their values on President Trump and other intrusive acts. Some were sent back under great duress it has since come out that around 60,000 visas have been revoked as a result of the Muslim ban. The day after the executive order was signed, the first of several lawsuits challenging the executive order was filed by the ACLU and partners, and since then, legal challenges against the executive order have been filed across the country. Recently, the broadest national ruling yet was issued temporarily suspending the ban. The administration said they'll appeal. I suspect we won't have a clear decision for a little while yet, leaving a lot of people who have been through this country's extremely thorough immigration process in a place of tremendous uncertainty. During the past week, the ACLU of Wisconsin has been contacted by so many people who are affected by this ban whether it is the woman who fell in love and got married overseas and is now concerned her husband will not be able to join her in the US, or the Syrian refugees who are waiting for mothers, sisters, daughters, or sons to join them here, this is wrong. President Trump's orders are immoral as well as unconstitutional. This order is a slap in the face to the millions of Americans who uphold our best traditions of welcoming the stranger seeking refuge. 
Vigilance is needed by all of us. This extreme vetting sets up government machinery for religious and ethnic discrimination under the pretext of national security. It is, not, it is designed to keep Muslims out as a part of Trump's long articulated plan. This goes against everything this country represents, going back to our founders' conviction in the United States as a nation where the government does not discriminate against any religion. What we are telling immigrants, including lawful permanent residents, please create plans with your families and an immigration attorney. Continue to stand hand in hand with your communities as we are doing today. Get involved locally, across the state, and nationally. We are a diverse society built in great part on the sweat and blood and ingenuity of immigrants and refugees. American Muslims, immigrants, and U.S. born alike are a part of the fabric of this nation and part of what makes America great. In this dark episode in our country's history, there is no place I'd rather be than right here fighting with you all. Thank you. First off, um, I want to thank everybody for being so generous with your time. We've run just a little long, but boy, talk about impactful personal testimony. And I can share with you that a lot of people who spoke here today actually moderated what they were sharing. Not certain of, you know, if we might have young ones in the audience. Um, I do want to take just a quick moment to thank Alberto Maldonado, um, the executive director of the Roberto Hernandez Center. Um, for being here, as well as Party Kalika and Serve to Unite, and all the great work he did, especially um, following the great tragedy we had at the Sikh Temple here. We have R.L. McNeely here, too, from the Felmers of Cheney Advocacy Board, and so many others that forgive me if I've missed you. But uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Alana now. And I want to, not to be redundant, but to be a touch redundant. I want to thank everybody also for sharing your stories and for sharing your call to action and for sitting together and, and sitting with the discomfort of all these stories. We intentionally ended with the ACLU because our challenge is to take our outrage and to turn it into action. So the next thing is for us to do something. We created a, a sheet of five things you can do. There are lots of other things, but our challenge is to walk out of here today not just hurting, not just angry, not just outraged, not just maybe feeling a little alienated, not just elevated, but committed to doing something. Because that also is the promise of America, that we stand together and we, we act together for our higher aspirations. So we want to close the program with a moment of silence, of coming together and committing ourselves to, to the next step. So let's do this. I, I think it's only fitting, and forgive me, I'm going to ask something of each and every one of you. Would you all mind coming up to the front here together? And let's gather hand in hand, not as Democrat or Republican or of this religion or that religion. Let's come together, let's hold hands, and we'll um, celebrate a moment of silence for all of the refugees who tonight are going to bed, not certain if they're going to wake up tomorrow. And the only thing that could be worse is fearing that your children would not wake up tomorrow. So with that, once again, if all of you could come to the front and we'll celebrate a brief moment of silence. Due to the weather, et cetera, we're, we're gonna hold off from the candle lighting ceremony to our, our next action, but um, I think this would be a beautiful way to remember them and can recommit ourselves to take an action 
to make sure that they all find safe harbor. Thank you and God bless.